Let's dive into the word. If you got a Bible, go to Jonah chapter three-ish, and then we'll get into four. So get in somewhere in that range. Three, four-ish, we'll be there. As you're turning there, let me recap a little bit. So there's a God, and God chooses to speak to people, and he uses people to do it. One of the people that he chose to, to speak to some people was this guy named Jonah. And God tells Jonah, hey, I see this large group of people in this really big city called Nineveh, and they're doing a lot of really bad things. And so, Jonah, I want you to leave where you're at and go to Nineveh and tell them to stop doing the bad things that they're doing. Jonah's like, God, I got a better idea. How about no? And Jonah turns and runs the opposite direction from what God tells him to do, goes almost to what was the, at that point in time, the end of the earth, sails all the way out to the Strait of Gibraltar, far away from God as he could possibly get. God sends a giant storm. Then God sends a giant fish. Jonah's running for God. God meets him with his grace, puts him in the fish for three days. The fish kind of acts like Uber and gets Jonah back where God wanted him to be spits him out on the shore. Jonah's there on the shore and he finally then chooses to listen to God. He goes and preaches a five word in Hebrew, eight word in English message to the people in Nineveh. He essentially just says, hey, in 40 days, God's gonna light you up. So that's it. He just, he doesn't tell him to repent. He doesn't tell him anything. He says in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. That's his eight word message. And then what happens is unthinkable. The people fast. The people put on sackcloth and ashes. The people repent. And then we see, and we talked about this last week, when they repent, God relents. He pulls back his judgment. He pulls back his punishment. And he chooses not to punish those people because they sincerely repent. And they receive salvation from the coming judgment of God because they repented of what they had done wrong. And our story today picks up with how Jonah feels about that. All right? If you got a Bible, hopefully you're there. Let's start in verse 10 of chapter 3, and then we'll read through all the way of verse, or chapter 4. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and, the, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might give him shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also so much cattle. And this is the weird, not in Sunday school ending to the story of Jonah. It ends with a question mark. 
It ends not like we had always thought the story of Jonah ended. It ends with an invitation to look in the mirror. And my hope is that we can do that today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this story, albeit confusing today, this chapter that we're getting ready to walk through. We pray that you would allow the truth that is bound up in scripture, that is bound up in the gospel to show us the reality of both who we are and who you are and who we can be in you. Jesus, we showed up today with all sorts of preconceived notions about what life is supposed to be like. And I pray that you would shatter all of those that you need to shatter so that we can understand what life in you is supposed to look like. In your name, amen. All right, let's dive in. We got a lot of ground to cover today, so hopefully we can lean into this kind of confusing part of this book and go, okay, what what in the world is actually going on here? So let's start where we were in verse 10, chapter three. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Remember, Jonah comes and he preaches his eight-word message to them, says in 40 days, Nineveh is gonna be overturned. And from the top of the society all the way to the bottom of the society, people fast. They even make their cows fast. They make all their livestock fast. They put uh, sackcloth and ashes on the cows even. They're trying to like cover all their bases to make sure they're as good as they can be. And what happens is God does. He relents from his punishment. We see that in verse 10. And it almost seems like this is where the story should end. Like, yay, way to go. And when we preach this in kids ministry, this is where we let the story end. When you read it in the Bible storybook, this is when the story ends. This is where VeggieTales ends the story. Like, and most of us, this is where we thought it ended too. But we have chapter four. In chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, which we kind of just look at and go, seriously, Jonah? I mean, this is the equivalent of, of me going, hey, we're going to get all of South Atlanta together and we're going to rent out the old Turner Field. And we're going to get all the people in Atlanta to show up in Turner Field and I'm going to preach my best message ever. And as I'm preaching, I give this altar call invitation and we see 30,000 people start making their way down out of the stadium onto the field as they're coming to give their life to Christ. And then you guys kind of turn and you look to me and you see me start getting, my, my ears start turning red. That's how you know I'm angry. I start getting angry and you hear me mummering. My mic's still hot. So I go, goodness gracious, God, I want you to turn all these people into kindling. I, what's going on right now? I wanted them to burn. I'm angry at you, God. This is evil. All these people coming to you, this is evil. And this is what Jonah's doing right now. This is, how dare you, God? If you have a footnote in your Bible, most of them, it, it translates, displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah saw that as exceeding evil. He saw what God was doing as evil. God, how dare you save these people? How dare you let my preaching work? How dare you, God, love who I hate? So this is how He's feeling, and it goes on. And because Jonah is a, a man of God, he prays. But this is what he prays. He prays to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said yet when I was in my country? Let's just pause right there for a second. We don't have this in our Bible, but what Jonah is getting after here as he's starting to finally uh, let some of his emotions out to God is that when God initially called Jonah when he was still in his country, when he was still in Israel, that he probably said some stuff to God there. But he starts, you know, giving God, this is why this is dumb. 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 We don't have that recounted in chapter one, but Jonah is kind of confessing to us here in chapter four that that's what he did. 
this is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus. He says, God, this is why I ran the opposite direction of your dumb idea. For I knew, listen to this, I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What's crazy here is Jonah is quoting to God, Exodus 34, 6, as his reason for being mad at God. Like, that, like we talked about last week, this is elite level. Elite level hypocrisy. God, I'm going to quote you to complain about you for you doing what I knew you would do. And again, none of us, would, we're all way too holy to ever do anything like that to God ourselves. And if this verse shows us anything, it shows us one, Jonah is a praying man. And two, Jonah's praying scripture. And three, Jonah knows the character of God. And what this shows us, guys, is that good theology does not make you a good person. You can know all the things about scripture. You can know all the passages. You can listen to the Bible recap podcast. You can do all these different things and still have great theology. Know all the things about Jesus, esoterical stuff. You can know about you know, the, the rapture and the end times and all those different things. And you can still be a really, really bad person. What this story proves to us about Jonah is that sometimes it's the most religious people who are the most resistant to God moving. And so the story goes on from there in verses three and four. He says, therefore, now, <laughs> not patient about it at all. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me. Again, great theology. He knows he can't just off himself. He knows if I'm gonna die, I wanna die, God. It would be bad and irreligious of me to kill myself though, God, so you do it. Good theology, bad person. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Kind of a weird way of asking this question. This is what God's after in his question. Jonah, do you really have a good reason to be this angry? Now I want us to talk about why Jonah is so angry. If I had to boil it down, I think there's really three reasons that Jonah is so angry in this moment. First of all, being a prophet to Nineveh is not within his job description. Maybe you ever have that happen at work? You know, somebody, a boss supervisor comes and they're like, hey, I know this isn't your job, but I need you to do this. You're like, Ugh. first of all, I'm gonna be worse at my actual parts of my job description if I go and do this. And two, why me? There's 14 other people who aren't as successful and as um, essential to this job. Why don't they go do this thing that's outside of their job description? Why do I have to go do this? And that's kind of where Jonah is at. Normally, prophets were prophets to the people of Israel. They're Israelite prophets who would go speak to the people of Israel and try to get the people of Israel, the Jewish people, to repent. And so Jonah is looking around at all the other prophets, the guys who have been risen up, and he's going, God, I know what our job is. Guys who have my job, they go and get a night, they go get alone in their quiet time, or they go, go up to the mountains like Isaiah, or they go you know, hang out by the brook like he did, or they go up to the mountain like Moses, they go get alone with you, and they get this great message from you, and then they go back and stand up with their chest out, and they tell the people to repent, and maybe the people repent. He's going, but God, you're mixing things up with me. I thought this is what it meant to be a prophet was to go speak to, to our people, the good people, not, not to go to them, not to go to those people, let alone people that we're just kind of neutral with, but our worst enemies, the Ninevites. God, why are you flipping my job description on its head and doing the unthinkable with me? So he's angry because God didn't meet his expectations and God colored outside of the lines in his job description. Another reason 
why Jonah's angry, and I think he kind of has grounds for this one. God tricked him. God didn't trick him because God is mischievous. God tricked him because Jonah had assumptions. You ever have assumptions about God? You ever just assume that God's going to do something the way you think he's going to do it? I don't have to tell you guys the, 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 the phrase about what assuming does uh, to you and me, because um, you know that one. But because Jonah has an assumption about God, he assumes some things about the message he gets from God. Remember, prophets were, were chosen by God to deliver a word from God. And the word that Jonah got from God is what caused Jonah to be confused about God. Check this out. This is the word that Jonah got from God. Jonah 3, 4. This is what God told Jonah to go and tell the Ninevites. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, this is where God, I think in well-meaning intention, kind of tricks Jonah. This word overthrown is the Hebrew word hafak. Let's say that together. Hafak. And I'm not going to make you say it how I think it's actually pronounced, which is hafak. Uh, <laughs> but we will just not go there. I'm not going to say it any more times because I don't want to be distracted. And I don't want to slip up. And I don't want that sound bite to get out there. All right? It's hafak today. All right? Jonah 3, 4. Now, this Hebrew word hafak, it's kind of like are English words that have double meanings. So I could go to my boys t tonight and I say, guys, if you both are really good all week long at school, I will give you something cool at the end of the week. If you're cool at school, I'm gonna give you something cool when I pick you up Friday at the car rider line. And they're hyped. They're like, okay, we're gonna be our best behavior. We're not gonna, you know, we're gonna be so good because dad's gonna give us a present. Dad's gonna give us a toy. Guys, they're gonna take us somewhere. He's gonna give us something cool after school on Friday. And then I pick them up in the car ride line and I hand them both thermoses full of ice. And I go, here you go. Something cool. Feel it. Feel how cold it is. It's so cool, guys. What are they going to be? They're going to be super disappointed. They're going to be like, Dad, you're a jerk. Like, why would you do this? Isn't it cool? You're going to start throwing ice cubes at me. <laughs> Words have two meanings. And this word of fact has three. And Jonah gets confused on which meaning God is after because he's after one. So, the first meaning of the word hafak is just turned over. In Hosea 7, 8, we have an example where it is used this way. Israel is like baked bread that has not been hafak. It's not been turned over, which is his way of saying, you guys all get this, you're Southern folks, you burnt the biscuits. <laughs> or you, you burnt the meat. You, it wasn't flipped. It burned on one side because it wasn't turned over. It wasn't hafak. Now there's a second meaning. The second meaning is overthrown and destroyed. And this is where Jonah perks up a little bit. I was like, I like that meaning. All right. Lamentations 4.6 is an example where this is used in this way. It says, the punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was Hafak, which was overthrown and destroyed. We know the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. The whole place was destroyed. That's what it's after there. Hafak, in a moment without a hand turned to help her. All right. So that's an option for the word. And then there's option three. Hafak, which means changed or transformed. In Psalm 30, this is where it's translated. You, Hafak, you change or transform. You change my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. So which of these three ways of interpreting that word do you think Jonah is after when God tells him, hey, here's what I want you to preach. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Which definition is Jonah after? <laughs> Two, for sure. Which is almost like, 
I envision Jonah finally getting out of the whale, getting back on the sea, and God going, okay, here's the message I want to tell. I'm telling you, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And it's almost like here, he's like, okay, I'm psyched about that. You're going to be overthrown. You're going to be overthrown because his overthrown doesn't mean uh, repented. His overturn doesn't mean transformed. His over, overturn doesn't mean just flipped over like, you know, you'd flip over a cheeseburger on the grill. His overturn means utterly destroyed. And so he's like, he's walking through Nineveh, chest out. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be destroyed 40 days and you're all going to be destroyed. He's just walking around telling them they're going to be destroyed. But what definition of Hafak is God on? Three. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and, and Jonah, he, meanwhile, he thinks God is on definition number two. He's like, God's going to destroy these folks. He's going to knock them out. He's going to wipe them out. God's like, no, 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 son. I'm on option three. I'm going to turn their mourning into dancing. I'm going to turn their sin into salvation. I'm going to turn their sin into something you would have never thought I could turn it into. See, I don't know if you've ever been tricked by God like that. You thought he was going to do one thing and he just completely did the other thing or he did nothing. That doesn't feel good. So Jonah is super angry because he feels like he was supposed to be an instrument of God. He was supposed to be like what happened in Lamentation 6. Nineveh was supposed to be another Sodom and Gomorrah. He, remember, he has great theology, guys. He knows Lamentations 4, 6. He knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how that was a great city that God just, fireworks, 4th of July. And he wants the same thing to happen in Nineveh. So he's angry. It's probably the second reason he's really angry. First one is God goes out of his job description. The second one is God kind of tricked him a little bit because he had some dumb assumptions about God's character. And the third reason, and maybe you started to pick this up in the story, is Jonah was racist. And Jonah was the worst kind of racist. Jonah was racist mixed with, racism mixed with nationalism is very, very dangerous. See, Jonah was an Israelite, which means Jonah was Jewish. And the people who read the Bible and read the scripture and the, the whole Jewish nation, they knew and understood that we were God's chosen people. What happened though is that got expanded based off of, I think, national pride that they felt to where chosen equaled favorite. How many of you know you can choose one of your kids to go do a job for you, but that does not mean that that is your favorite kid. And see, the nation of Israel, this whole children, the Israelite people, they had taken God choosing them to be a special tool to accomplish his mission as we are God's favorites. And on top of that, expanded out even further, when I know that I'm chosen by God and I know that I'm God's favorite, what that also means is God probably hates the other people compared to how much he loves us. And on top of that, there's a multitude of things that the nation of Assyria and the Ninevite people have done against the Hebrew people. Wars, beatings, killings. They are incredibly violent. They have good reason. The Israelite people, Jonah included, have good reasons to not be immediately friendly with the Ninevites. But what happens here, and this is how racism works. This is how we, this is how I think Jonah somewhat got to racism. And this is how we, if we're not careful, we'll get to racism as well. Now remember, we live in this kind of society. Us versus them. 
Everything that is on the news, most everything that you'll read online, most even some things that you hear, unfortunately, from pulpits in many churches is to divide and fraction us out even more so that we become people who have us versus them mentality. And we look for things to further the fact that we are right, that we are the best, and they are wrong. And we love to get angry. We love to cancel. We feed on things that make us further to divide. And so this racism, I think, comes in Jonah's heart because it happened the way it happens to many of us. See, racism happens when hurt turns into hate. See, there's no no denying that hurt actually happened. For for a large demographic of our uh, American society, I'm talking about anybody who's African-American heritage, there's been unspeakable hurt that has happened to you, your people, your ancestors. And if we're not careful, what happens is the things that have hurt us, the things that have hurt our people, if we don't allow them to be processed through the gospel, the hurt turns into hate. And the hate proceeds to hurt more. Whether it's by us harboring the hurt and the hate or us beginning to go do hateful things to other people because we hate the hurt that somebody did to us. See, hate leads to hurt, but there's a breakdown. What we need to understand is anything that somebody has done to hurt you, sinful thing, whether it was to oppress you, whether it was to neglect you, anything that somebody has done that was a sinful behavior to you was first and foremost not a sin to you. Every sin that somebody's done to you and every sin that you've done to somebody else was not a sin to them first and was not a sin to you first. Every sin was first and foremost a sin against a holy, righteous, perfect God. When you sin against another sinner, it's sinner on sinner. But before it is sinner on sinner, it's sinner on Savior. It's the sin that we commit against God first. And so what we need to understand, and this is what allows our hurt to not turn into hate, is God, you're the righteous judge. God, you're in charge. God, I know that I have sinned so much against you. God, I know that I am an enemy of you. But you, in your love, you came and made me, though I was an enemy, a friend through Christ. Another way that we arrive at a place of racism, and this is likely something that Jonah and all the Israelites encountered even through the people in Nineveh, is we allow preferences to become prejudice. Now, we're not necessarily talking about sins that people have committed against us here. We're more so talking about style and preference. Well, I like um, when we sing really loud, boisterous songs at church. Well, I like when we sing the songs that are really introspective and make me think and make me almost cry and give me chills. Well, I like when I don't have to be told to clap my hands. Don't tell me to clap my hands. If I want to clap my hands, I'll clap my hands. (laughs) I want to bring a tambourine, but they won't let me bring a tambourine. (laughs) Uh, thankfully, nobody's asked to do that. And don't ask. <laughs> oh, here's the deal. You can bring a tambourine and you can pat that tambourine all during rehearsal, all you want. And then put it up. We have preferences. And I'm not just talking about stylistic stuff within the church. I'm talking about, well, well, why would those people spend money that way? That doesn't make any sense. Or, or why would they prefer to say the same thing that I'm saying, but they say it in this way? See, what happens is we can't understand why anybody would do something a different way than we would do it. 
And because they're doing it different than we would do, or they have a different opinion of what we do, even if we can kind of look at the stats and go, well, by and large, my way works better, but their still way kind of works. And we're not, and again, we're not talking about sinful things. We're just talking about, I prefer it to be done this way, and you prefer it to be done this way. You prefer, prefer uh, to parent your kids this way, and I prefer to my, parent my kids this way. What happens is preferences, if we're not careful, we will start to think that the whole purpose of existence, the, the reason we're here is so that everybody will start being like you. But friend, you were not here and Jesus did not come to this earth, walk on this earth, give his life on the cross, be dead, buried and resurrected to turn a bunch of people into you. We are here not so that people will become like us. We're here so that we would become like Jesus. And that kills our prejudice because we know it's not about, oh, they like that that way and they like that way. No, what is Jesus? Who is he? He's the center of the universe. Let, 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 let our preferences fall to the side and let who he is and what the gospel commands us to do to be the focal point of who we are. And the last reason that I think Jonah got here, and if we're not careful, we will get here too in racism, is we have to understand that what you idolize causes you to demonize let me explain what I mean by that. When I say demonize, what I'm not saying is you like cast demons into people because that's weird. What I'm saying here is demonize means I look at that person as a threat. I look at that person as a part of the problem, not as good as I am. Let me explain this. If I idolize my maleness, I love being able to do certain things standing up. I love being able to lift heavier things than my wife. I love being a man. But if I idolize my masculinity, I idolize the fact that I'm a man, what eventually will happen is I will become to this place where I begin to demonize the opposite sex, the opposite gender. And yes, I said there are only two. I will begin to demonize them because they're not as good as I am and they can't do things without me. They're not as good. If I idolize, let's, we already were there, let's just keep going further and send the emails, I love them. Um, <laughs> If I idolize my, the good old U.S. of A, I love this country. It's a great country. But the moment you idolize this country, you have invariably begun to demonize all others because you worship yours. You think that yours is the only source and the only solution. But friends, I am glad to break this to you Jesus is not building a country. He is building a kingdom and he has a kingdom and his kingdom expands far beyond all countries. And so we don't idolize our country. We idolize our King Christ who is Lord of all the nations. That's a good place. And that, that's what leads us to those places. And so Jonah is, is definitely us and them. And he's, all of these lead to why he is so angry at these people of Nineveh, and not just the people of Nineveh, he's angry at God. So what does Jonah do? Let's check out verse five. This is where it starts to get fun. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what will become of the city. So this is Jonah. <laughs> he tells God he wants to die. He goes out here. He sets him up a lawn chair. He crosses his legs. He crosses his fingers. And he says, God, I hope that their repentance is fake and you send the fireworks show and light them up like the 4th of July. So much so that I'm going to just camp right out here, just on the outskirts of the town, so I can see this happen. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, listen, this is the same dude 
who got on a ship, sailed as far from Nineveh as he possibly could. Now, where can you not get him out of? Nineveh. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, who told him to stick around and see what would become of Nineveh? Nobody. <laughs> it's so crazy. This is how much Jonah hates these folks. He's so, he, he hates what's going on so much that he is still holding on to whatever sliver of hope that God will change his mind or that they just did enough to get God off their back and now God's going to see what they did and just <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. And, he, <laughs> and because he's Jonah, he wants to see that happen. Now, again, y'all are all super saved, and I know nobody here would ever, ever hope that something bad would happen to somebody who maybe did something bad to you. But if you are here and you've ever had one of those kind of thoughts where somebody has neglected you or done something wrong to you or one of your kids, and you kind of secretly sit back, and here's what's wild. Maybe you don't realize this. Somebody will do something wrong to you. And you weren't really paying a whole lot of attention to them until they did something wrong to you. But they do something wrong to you, and what do you start doing? You start spying on them. You start paying attention to what they're doing. You were never giving them that much attention until they did something wrong to you. Why? Because you're looking for something bad to happen to them to make you feel a little bit more justified about the hurt that happened to you. See, what's crazy is we were never supposed to be focused on what becomes of other people, even the people who do wrong to us. If you're taking notes, you can write it down like this. When you focus on what they're becoming, you become blind to what you're becoming. You lose track that you're becoming a really terrible person who sit around, their kid did nothing to you, but their kid gets diagnosed with something or, or, or their kid gets held back a grade and you're like, yeah, I knew they were a bad parent. I cannot, none of y'all will ever think this kind of stuff. I know y'all are all way too saved to ever have thoughts like this. It's just me up here. You have no idea who you're becoming. See, what happens is, and this is what's going on in Jonah's life. We want God to give us grace. And we're so pumped when he gives us grace. You know, go back to chapter two, listen to Jonah's prayer. God, you, you rescued me from the deep. He, he's writing God just like poem prayers, just, just letting God have it. And salvation alone belongs to the Lord. He's so glad that God saves him. But when God saves somebody else, he's ready to kill it. He's like, God, I can't kill myself, but will you do it? He's so angry. This is evil, God. God is so holy and righteous that you would save me, but it's so evil and, and, and painful that you would save somebody else. See, we want grace for ourselves. We want God's judgment for other people. But God is, we understand, he's both a God of judgment and grace. But far too often, we want all the grace and no judgment. And we want to give all the judgment to other people and give them no grace. The reason that is, is because we judge ourselves based off of our intentions and we judge everybody else off of their actions. So, what that, what, how that plays itself out is I see you be negligent or something like that. And I go, okay, well, I'm judging you that you did that because you're a bad person. And then I do the very same thing. And then I say things like, oh, you know, my heart, you know, that's not who I am. Or I say something offhand or backhand. And I just go, oh man, I was just, I was just kidding. You know, my heart, that's not me. We judge ourselves off our intentions, but we see what they do and we don't care about their intentions. We don't care if there's a mistake. We don't care about their backstory. All we see is the action that God should judge. And he shouldn't judge our actions. He should judge our hearts. And that's why it's really dangerous to sit around and look and hope that other people are going to, to overly focus on what they're going to become. Because you fail to realize how twisted you're becoming. And really the worst reason 
grasp is this. When you focus on what will become of them, you miss what became of him, Jesus. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that's caused me a lot of consternation, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it means, but I think I know enough of it, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is what I mean by you miss what became of him. It says, for our sake, he made him. That's God made Jesus for our sake. Now, included in the hour is you and who? Your enemy. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin. So we want to worry about who's becoming what? Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what he's saying here is, if my focus, you've done something wrong to me, I'm focusing on what becomes of you, and I'm hoping it's really bad, so that I can become someone who feels really good, and I'm over now what you did to me. That's garbage. He says, when I do that, what's happening is, I fail to see what Jesus became, not just for me, but for both of us. He became sin so that we, me and my enemy included, could become the righteousness of God. Because we were both enemies. We were both out and abandoned. We were both sons and daughters of disobedience. We were both sinners sinning against each other who had also sinned against the Savior. And he comes in, becomes our sin, so that we can become the righteousness of God. And I'm so focused on what you're becoming, I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss Jesus. Story goes on. We see Jonah run. We see Jonah pout. But we still see God in his grace pursuing him. And he does it through some object lessons. Jonah 4, 6. It says, the Lord appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Obviously, his little booth wasn't cutting it. God sends a big old plant, give him a lot more shade. And it says that Jonah here is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, those same words are there on purpose. The reason that the author of Jonah, which I think is Jonah, because again, who else would know all this stuff but him? And I think this is Jonah just going, hey, God finally got me right, and I'm going to tell you guys how stupid I used to be as a story of his grace. And then you can see maybe how stupid you are sometimes. So what he's saying here is the plant came up, and I was exceedingly glad. But what did he say he was when God saved 120,000 Ninevites? exceedingly angry. Save 120,000 people who have real life souls, spend eternity in some place, save 120,000 of them who are created in the Imago Dei, image of God. I'm exceedingly angry. Give me a plant. Exceedingly happy. I love this plant. God, like listen to the roller coaster of emotion. God, thank you so much for this thing. I love this plant. It's the best plant ever. Look at the leaves and the veins. I love this plant. But those Ninevites, I hate them. I hate all of them. Wish they die. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Big little plant, small little worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. God gives, God takes away. He has a reason for doing it. And when the sun rose, God wasn't done yet, but wait, there's more. God appointed a scorching east wind. Remember, this is happening in, in modern-day Iraq. So this isn't Jonah sitting up on top of you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains just taking a nice breeze in and the foothills of the Smokies. This is Jonah in Iraq just getting smoked out by God, which is hilarious. And this is how you know Jonah is a guy. One, he's stupidly stubborn, and two, he has a chair. 
And so <laughs> Jonah's just up on the mountain. And remember, what did he ask God to do already? Like, he's already asked God to die once. And second, we're going to see him ask God to, to kill him again. Like, Jonah's just sitting up on this mountain. And again, who told him to stay there? Nobody. It's Jonah's way of saying, God, either you're going to take me out or I'm going to die on this mountain. Become heck or high water. I'm not moving until I see them pay. And so this thing comes and eats him, and then God sends a scorching east wind, sun beats down on the head of Jonah, so he's faint. And again, here he is, asking God that he might die. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. Now God starts to interrogate him a little bit here in verse 9. Same question. But God said, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, the first time God asked him this question, he just said, do you do well to be angry? This is when Jonah was angry that God saved all the Ninevites. Now, what did Jonah respond then the first time God asked him, do you do well to be angry? What did Jonah say back? Trick question. Nothing. He pouts and runs out to the hill and sets up camp, which is kind of his way of admitting, I don't want to talk to you about it. He slams the door in God's face and, <laughs> and runs up to the top of the mountain. And here's God going, okay, let's, let's lean in here, Jonah. You, you're exceedingly angry enough to die when I save this amount of people, but I give you a plant for one night and kill it in one night, and you're exceedingly happy about the plant. But then when it's gone, you're willing to die. And now you'll actually answer me and say, yes, I have all the right to be this angry at you, God. I'm angry enough to die. I'm angry enough to die over this plant. See, this is what God is getting after with him. He's going, Jonah, you, you care about things. What do you care about people? You care about your stuff. It's here today and gone tomorrow that thieves break in and steal, that moth and rust destroy. You are so concerned about your things, but you don't give a rip about my people. You don't care. And you think you have a right to be angry about this plant? Then God starts letting him have it. He says, when God asks you a question, it's not because he needs you to hear an answer. It's because you need to hear the answer. So this question that God's asking twice now, hey, do you, do you have a right to be angry? It's not God knows. God, go, God is in heaven. Like God knows, hey, Jonah, you're being stupid right now. You have no right to be angry at me for saving the Ninevites, and you have no right to be angry at the me and the worm tag teaming it here, killing your plant. You have no right. Here's what you need to understand. When God asks you a question, he's not asking you a question so he can hear the answer. He's asking you the question so you can hear the answer. Now, some of you are like, well, God ain't never spoke to me. He never asked me no questions. I have. From this stage, I've asked you many questions. Now, again, I don't stand on the authority of my gift as a communicator. I don't stand on the authority of my charisma or ability to tell a story. I stand on the authority of God's word. What he's calling me to do is to preach his word. And if they're preaching his word, I take parts of his word and give you questions of the word then those are questions that, that I'm cautious to say this. Those are questions that God may even use me or a preacher to be a vessel through which God is asking you that question. So when I ask you a question that doesn't really have anything to do with this, if God answered all your prayers today that you prayed yesterday, would the world look any different or would just your world look different? Well, that's a question from God. When, when your kid looks at you after you get home from work, and goes, what are you looking at on your phone, Daddy? That's a question from God. 
Not so that your little boy or girl can hear the answer to the question, but so that you can hear the question. And when you go, nothing, you cannot just be saying nothing because you don't want to tell them what you're really looking at, but you can say nothing because the nothing that you're looking at really compares and is nothing to the fact that your offspring creating God's image is standing right there in front of you. Nothing. And God will use your kids. He'll use your spouse. He'll use your pastor. He'll use his word. He'll use many different things to ask you questions. And he's not asking them so that you can hear the answer. He's asking them so that, or not, he's not asking them because he needs the answer. He's asking them because you do. And God responds in a really fun way to Jonah. And he says, okay, you pity the plant. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night, Jonah. And he goes here. He says, should I not pity Nineveh? A great city? Is there more than 120,000 persons who, who don't know their right hand from their left? And much cattle. We'll get into that in a second. But what, what God's saying here is, listen, Jonah, this is one plant, inanimate object, and, and you're pitying this. Should I not pity Nineveh? People created in my image and likeness. My kids, 120,000 of them who are, who are not just harming themselves because sinful effects on their lives, but they're also harming my people, Jonah. I see it all. I want my kids to get along and, and play well together. And if I wanted to use you to help be a part of that, then let me use you. Don't get angry at me for, for saving them because I saved you too. And, and what's wild here is what Jonah fails to realize is that the city is near to the heart of God because inside the city is the most what? People. See, I love going to the mountains and, and hiking, exploring places in Wyoming, Colorado, Alaska, all those places. And sometimes you get out there and, and, and you'll say something stupid like, oh, this is God's country. And, and, and it is, okay? But do you know what is more God's country? Cities. I don't, I, I'm not a fan of cities. Like if God showed up to me and said, son, go to New York City and preach the gospel, I would be a Jonah-like prophet, somewhat reluctant. <laughs> but here's the thing that you need to understand the wide open spaces of Wyoming and Colorado is less God's country than an urban city because within the urban city is a more population of the things of God. The very only thing that was created in his image and likeness, the only thing through which uh, the, the salvation that he wants to give can flow through. The only thing that he said is the rock upon our will build the church, this, this living organism. The only thing that is capable of, of praying and preaching and healing and doing these things, that's people. And so uh, let me just talk to Henry County folks for a second. We can whine and moan and complain that there are more people moving into our city than we have roads for and we can get all up in arms about that and say we're going to move out to God's country, but here's what you need to know and understand. More people here potentially equals more of God here. Now you can run from that if you want to. I don't know if I would, and I don't want to. That's a question between you and him. But our God over and over again throughout scripture shows that he is a God who has a heart for the city because there within the city is the most people and the most potential to be used by him. And I love the last line. It's hilarious. He goes, and also much cattle. <laughs> and that's where, that's where the whole story ends. And a lot of cows. 
And you're like, why, why there? Okay. Well, again, God has a sense of humor. It's kind of a British sense of humor that we don't, we have a hard time getting sometimes. What, what's happening right there is God is hearkening Jonah back to his love for things. He's like, Jonah, I heard about how much you love plants and how much you want to freak out and think you can die because a plant was taken away from you. Well, I know how much you love things. Well, Jonah, remember there's a lot of cows in Nineveh. I know how much you love things more than people. It's God's, God's, God's way of being sarcastic and calling Jonah out on this. And, and hear me. The reason the story ends with a question mark is not so that you go, I wonder how Jonah responds. The reason the story ends with a question mark is so that you go, how will I respond? Because I, like Jonah, have a propensity to view other people as enemies of God, people who should not receive his grace and should receive his judgment. And I see myself as a friend of God. I, like Jonah, have a tendency to value things and what they can provide for me, my family, more than I value people and the fact that they're created in his image. Which is why every year, the nation of Israel, Jonah's people, they would gather together on the holy day called Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. And what the people would do is they would read cover to cover the story of Jonah. And after they would read the story of Jonah, they would all stand up in unison. And the whole point of the story was so that they could get this. After reading the story, they would all stand up and in unison say, I am Jonah. So that they could see their sin in him. Now, the good news is, friends, we are gospel people. We're not just Old Testament people. We're not just Jews. We're mostly Gentiles in this room who are brought in under the new covenant paid for by Jesus' blood. So what this means is, just like the nation of Israel, we can look at this story as part of our canon of scripture and go, yes, without a doubt, us 2023 folks here in McDonough, here in America, I am Jonah too. We are Jonah too. But thank God we come to this place where we realize we are Jonah. And the only hope when you realize you are Jonah is a Jesus. God, I need him. Because I was an enemy of God and he came and set me free. And so that's going to be how we end today. And then we're going to sing a song and I'm going to baptize two teenagers. And we're going to have an amazing time worshiping God. I'm going to invite you now, wherever you're at, to actually stand with us together. And we're going to do like the nation of Israel did. We're going to repeat and, and confess to God collectively today that we are Jonah. And hopefully you see the pairing here in its beauty. That as we in one hand can confess that we are Jonah, we can then reach down and take up communion and be able to know and understand that my only hope for me as someone who is a Jonah is what Jesus did to sacrifice so that me, who was once an enemy of God, who was, was, who was once someone who would withhold grace from other people, has now been made a friend through the blood of Christ. And because I know there's a lot of Jonah in me, I'm going to put... Jesus in me today through the bread and the juice. Say it with me, church. I am Jonah. Jesus, you hear our cry. You hear our confession. Because there's a lot of Jonah in us, we need you in us more. Be with us as we meet with you. Break the, break the body and drink the blood. In your name, amen.